Lord, I'm just particularly grateful to now finish another book that you've brought us to, Lord, and, and to see all that you've had for us, Lord, to teach us through these lives that we've observed and teach us about ourselves. Lord, you've taught us about goodness and righteousness and love. Lord, you've taught us about your redemption, your peace, our responsibilities. Lord, thank you for this, this opportunity to study together and to heed your word, Lord. Show us how you love us. Lord, bless our, our time here now. Help me to uh, speak forth your truth. Help us to live it all out together, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amazing journey, I think. Um, you know, we followed this family who, who left Israel, traveled down into the land of Moab, and ran into a whole lot of struggles. They faced death, they faced poverty, they faced hunger, probably all sorts of things that aren't listed in the text. And then we learned about three widows who were left without husbands and how two of them chose then to journey back into Israel again when they heard that the famine had been lifted. They met a godly relative named Boaz. He was willing to extend grace in many different ways. He complimented them for seeking refuge under the God of Israel, through, under his wings. So together with Naomi, Ruth, then with Boaz now, They've all experienced the fullness of all that God has to offer. I'd say a story of redemption doesn't get any better than this. So the question is, now what? Now what? They've entered this season of prosperity. Do they sit down at the dinner table now and just talk about how all the good old days that they remember? And, or do they move forward? What do they do now? Now, does everyone, does anyone, I'm sure you all do, do you have fond memories of your past? I know I do. I can think of my yesteryear of being raised in a small farm out in the country and all that had to offer. I can think about how our sandbox was placed right outside of mom's kitchen window above her sink where when I was playing out there as a youth, she could look and make sure I was safe. I don't know what would have hurt me out there in the middle of North Dakota. There was really nothing to hurt me, but she made sure I was safe. I remember her cooking in that day and age. Pretty much every noon and evening meal was home-cooked. Wonderful cook. I remember Dad teaching me to drive the tractor, taking me out to the field, teaching me to work, teaching me all kinds of different, different tasks. And each of these memories that I have are true and factual. But can anybody see the problem here? Can anyone see... Um, what I'm leaving out concerning my past. I'm leaving out all the bad stuff. It's called idealizing. And, and idealism is, is a valuable coping mechanism that we all have, and it helps us to put away those memories from the past that are very troubling to us. It filters them out, and it brings to the front of our minds the happy things, the good things. It's very valuable. It helps us to overcome and forget pain. Uh, 
In my idealism, I neglected to tell you about the decade of financial stress where our, fam, our family farm teetered on the edge of bankruptcy that entire time. I failed to mention the time I was horsing around on the, on the top of a piece of equipment, dropped a sledgehammer on my dad's head because <laughs> I was messing around. I also failed to mention that one time I was running across a sandbox and I it took weeks to heal after I split my lip open on the edge of that sandbox. Why, why don't I mention these? I don't want to think about them. One of the greatest philosophers I ever knew, personally, my dad, he told it straight. He grew up in a different era. He, uh, when he was a teenager, his family had over 20 beautiful draft horses that they used for plow work, Percherons and Belgians, they farm naturally before all those horrible pesticides and chemicals and everything that we use today. It was before television brought all these extra things into our home that nobody wants to have around their children. And I asked Dad one time after he retired. It wasn't many years before his death, and I almost asked it with a little bit of sarcasm uh, because I remembered most of the stories. I said, Dad, tell me about the good old days. He looked at me, almost like he was staring right through me, visualizing the past. He said, the good old days? I don't remember any. They had no indoor plumbing. Their dentist had no Novocaine. Doctors, no penicillin. When the crop rotted, they didn't have disease control. When the grasshoppers came, they had no way to get them away. There were years that they didn't have, hardly have any crop at all. They didn't have modern ways to deal with it. He lived through the Dust Bowl, no air conditioning. Can you imagine what that was like? Um, he lost people in World War II, friends, in Korea, in Vietnam. He didn't see anything worth going back to. Now, he wasn't a pessimist. There were good things that he talked about, but he wasn't an idealist either. My dad was a realist. Reality is where we live today. Hope is what we have for tomorrow. There's no hope in yesterday, folks. Yesterday's gone. There's no way to have hope in that. Uh, the Bible never tells us to have any hope in yesterday. It instructs us to learn from yesterday and to make adjustments accordingly, use that information to improve ourselves, improve our lives, not repeat past mistakes, but we're always taught to place our hope in tomorrow. Naomi and Ruth knew that. They didn't want to go back to, to Moab. No, uh, nothing good happened there. Uh, they don't want to remember their hunger. They don't remember their poverty. They don't want to remember how they lost their husbands. They're focused on tomorrow. That's where our text is today. And the people of the city who had just witnessed this marriage of Ruth to Boaz, the commitment to it, they don't pray for their past. Does anyone here pray for their past? Who would do that? You can't pray for your past. We pray for our future. And that's exactly what the people do uh, after the announcement of Boaz's marriage, marriage to Ruth. We, now we look at here and we see the people. They're excited to pray for the future of Boaz and his family. Look at verse 11 in chapter 4. It says, all the people who were in the court and the elders said, 
We are witnesses. Now that signals their approval of the marriage proposal. And they continue, May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel, and may you achieve wealth in Ephrath and become famous in Bethlehem. Again, as we mentioned last week, the value that is entering Boaz's home is the woman. You won't see that land mentioned again. Uh, They don't talk about that. Uh, They're praying for her to be fertile and to bear children. You know, at this point, though young, Ruth hadn't had any children. She was down in Moab, and we don't know the situation there, but she hadn't had any yet. But sensing God moving in the lives of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, the mother-in-law, the people believe their future looks incredibly bright. So they pray a prayer and invite the blessing of God. Now, if Ruth were to become like Rachel and Leah, that would propose 12 children. Rachel and Leah, along with their maids, bore uh, the 12 children that were the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, The people envision Boaz's new life with this new mother, this new wife. They see that it provides a lot of hope for tomorrow. A lot of hope for the next generation. The hope for tomorrow doesn't come through the tract of land. They don't pray for an abundant crop. They don't pray for... uh, filled barns, what do they pray for? Offspring. They pray for godly offspring. Seek ye first his kingdom and all his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. First and foremost, they're thinking about building a righteous family, a godly family. And uh, it's it's quite intriguing, actually, when you look at that passage, how Boaz's wealth and notoriety are at least implied as being contingent upon some sort of reproduction. Look at that closely. The reproduction comes close, and he might that he might become famous and wealthy. Psalm one twenty seven, verse three says, "Behold, children are a gift of the Lord; the fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of the warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them, and they will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate." Now, can you imagine? Stepping up into the city gate, and one of your enemies approaches and starts saying something not so polite and maybe insulting you and such. And then your 12 sons step up behind you. Would that give you some confidence? Having 12 healthy boys and girls who, who know a whole bunch of di- uh, diverse crafts, a bunch of different diverse talents... You have some that are seasoned in battle. You have some that are seasoned in in growing crops. You have some that are talented in making clothing, others in worshiping. they got a really big family that makes you stronger. Biblically, the hope and security of our future arrives through the potential of reproducing offspring. The elders continue in praying to Boaz uh, to gain wealth and become famous in Bethlehem. That has, by the way, become fact for Boaz through this book. He is famous, known by all generations. Moreover, it says in verse 12, May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. These people are very optimistic. 
They don't move into the future. You and I can't move into the future without optimism. They give no indication they're speaking prophetically. Instead, they're asking God to bless. That's what they're asking Him to do. You see, when you ask for something that God has clearly revealed as good, such as children here in this situation, that's not presumption. You are just asking God to fulfill His will in your life. God's will is for His church to grow and that there'd be reproduction. Sometimes people fear asking God for a, a huge blessing upon something, upon a family, uh, upon the church. They don't want to be presumptive. We're all afraid of that, aren't we? Uh, they cite James chapter 4. It says, Come now, you who say tomorrow or today we will go and to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow, James says. You're just like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and we will do this or we will do that. But these men's problem was that they were boasting in a capitalistic business venture. It's a venture that they had no idea whether God was going to be involved or whether he was going to be concerned about the endeavor at all. We don't have to discern that for the church. We know God is involved. We know that he wants to build it. I'm personally asking God to to grow our spiritual family with a godly offspring. I know a Pastor Weiler, the deacons, many of you, staff members, other ministry leaders, are planning for, praying for, and I would say expecting significant growth to Christ's church right here at Port St. Lucie Bible Church. That's not, that's not presumption. Why? Because God uh, wants to build His church. Jesus Christ has already revealed that He wants to grow His church. So when we pray for church growth, when we're expecting church growth, we are already praying according to God's will. We're not presuming anything. We're just boldly asking God to use our feeble efforts to glorify Himself in Jesus Christ. By adding, by the way, godly offspring. To what level is He going to answer that? Well, we aren't sure. We aren't sure. But just like literal families of the Old Testament who grew strong with many physical offspring, as they still do today, I might add, spiritual families, churches grow strong with many spiritual offspring as well. The more you bring in, the stronger your family grows. Now, of course, I know we always have to be careful to not haphazardly apply Old Testament passages directly to the church. And I'm not. What I am doing is using an Old Testament principle of family growth as a visual aid, as a visual representation of existing New Testament texts, commands, and promises of Christ himself. The principle from the Old Testament applies, and that principle is this. Just as growth was good for Jewish families who were seeking fulfillment and delight, strength and security, numeric growth is good for church families. Everybody loves new faces, more strength, more talent. We delight in growth. 
And our expectation of, of growing isn't presumptuous. For those of you here who are enjoying, I'm sure enjoying, the study of Acts, going through Wearsby's commentary on Acts, and, and looking at the history through Acts, I don't know exactly what chapter you're in, but it, it's unmistakable. You read through Acts, it is unmistakable where Jesus Christ is proclaimed, you will see a numeric growth. Where there is courage to proclaim the gospel, I can assure you with confidence in God's word that there's going to be growth. And there's one thing that I will say here at Port St. Lucie Bible Church. You guys have a lot of courage. I am very impressed with what I've seen recently. I've seen people go out to many locations with and without me, proclaiming Christ, talking to others about Jesus. I was talking to Gerald. I think on our evangelism nights out, when we politely approach people about Jesus Christ, we haven't kept statistics, don't need to, but we're ranging anywhere between a third, possibly close to a half of the people that we approach, are allowing us to present a full presentation of the gospel. Some of us tell us they're not interested. But at least a third. And I like to come home and like, well, I saw six people and I only, had, I only got to present the gospel in three tonight. Wow. I got to check myself. Got to proclaim the gospel to three people? And then last weekend, we had two brand new professions of faith in Christ out in Whispering Pines Park. And we come back and it's like, wow, wish we could have had 30. Man, we had two people! That makes six overall in the last five weeks. Solid professions. Those are solid professions. And we're leaving the gospel with a whole lot more people. We're explaining it to them. We're encouraging them to receive it telling them, don't go home today without trusting in Jesus Christ. And that with the, with the other ministries that are going on, the youth ministries, signs in the corner, different things that you're doing, I am very encouraged at what I'm seeing through you folks. I believe God's going to fulfill His promises. And without digressing a, a lot further, uh, just as the city prayed for God's blessing on Boaz's family, that... Uh, they would grow. We need to pray the same blessing for our church. We need to pray and expect that God is going to grow us. And we are seeing that. We are seeing numeric growth in our church. It's really primarily been taking off now with people we've been reaching. Our hope for the future of our church, whatever hope you want to call it, rewards in heaven, paying a mortgage, reaching the lost, better worship, Better preaching. Everything resides in numeric growth. We need to win the next generation to Christ. Now returning to our text, and concerning the mention of Perez, uh, he, was not, uh, he was not only uh, born of Tamar and Judah, he was also an ancestor we see of Boaz. Now you might recall in that arrangement, uh, with Tamar, uh, it was supposed to be a leveret marriage of Judah's son to Tamar. He was supposed to allow that marriage to go forward. Uh, it actually became more of a shotgun wedding. Uh, Tamar lured Judah, the father, in fulfilling the role of kinsman redeemer because he went, uh, Judah would not allow his son to marry her. Um, he reneged. Judah reneged on that responsibility of redemption. 
Then we found out that she had tricked him. She became pregnant uh, with child. Uh, he proclaimed, she is more righteous than I. Now, why is that? He isn't implying, I don't believe, he doesn't contend that she's more righteous because she played the role of a harlot. She was more righteous because he refused to fulfill the role of redemption. He said, I don't want to do that. A lot like our Mr. So-and-so. A lot like our gentleman, that uh, the other relative that goes unnamed uh, next to Boaz. He didn't want to fulfill the role. Now hang with me. Think about this. The elders in the city gate knew that Boaz was a descendant of Judah and Tamar. They knew that. And it was a result of a leveret redemption, a leveret marriage. Um, that's why the elders mention them now in this prayer, along with their son Perez, in praying for Boaz's marriage. Unless Tamar had forced Judah to fulfill his obligation to provide a, uh, a godly offspring, Boaz would not be standing there before them today. The elders knew that. We can be quite confident that the elders recalled the story of Tamar and Judah when Boaz insisted to the other relative, Mr. So-and-so, when it was insisted that he fulfill his role in the Leveret marriage, in this custom. And when that relative refused to do so, it likely didn't go all that, down all that well for him. They would likely exclaim, the elders in, gates, in the gates would say, everyone knows that blessing comes from a godly offspring. Everybody knows that. And you, Mr. So-and-so, refuse to fill your role in redemption. Shame on you. But Boaz was willing to fulfill that redemptive role for Ruth. And what's the result? The result is they reproduced. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her. And the Lord enabled her to conceive. And she gave birth to a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. And may his name become famous in Israel. This is just the most remarkable text concerning Naomi, the mother-in-law. Now she is a first-time grandma. The other children, her sons didn't provide that. They died in, down in Moab. First-time grandma. And she too now, the text says, has a redeemer. But the redeemer here in this passage is not Boaz. Look closely at verse 15. It says that Naomi's redeemer... May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, Ruth, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. The immediate redeemer to Ruth was Boaz. We know that from the tribe of Judah again. But the restorer of life to the older Naomi, her redeemer is the offspring in the next generation. Ruth had just given birth to him. No matter how you interpret this, uh, the hope is in the offspring of the tribe of Judah. He restores Naomi's life. He provides Naomi's purpose. And the next generation provides hope for tomorrow to everyone. He even mentions uh, in that same passage that Ruth herself is better in seven sons. Seven now would have been the number of sons that the Israelite women would have thought as being uh, completeness. Um, 
would have been ideal. Uh, for Naomi, whose sons died down in Moab, Ruth far exceeded that. She's far exceeded that. The implication is that for Naomi, who returned from Moab widowed without children, uh, now too old to have her own children, she's been now fully restored. Fully restored in Israel. And she loves that child. She cherishes that child. And in verse 16, it says that Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of King David. Tamar was a Gentile. Ruth was a Gentile. And for the Israelite who would be reading this book, the conclusion of this book that lists this genealogy all the way down to King David, it would become painfully clear that God twice twice preserved the royal throne through Gentiles and through leveret marriage. Twice. And then it would become also painfully clear that those two times, in both situations, there were Jewish men who were unwilling to fulfill a role of Redeemer. They were unwilling to step in and do it. God had to redeem in spite of them. He grafted them in to the olive branch. Also concerning this son, you'll find that uh, this is the only place in the Old Testament that uh, a community or people around are permitted to name the child. Any guess what Obed means in Hebrew? The name means servant. The offspring of Judah was a servant. He was also a redeemer. Sound familiar? And Naomi's redeemer, as the child that uh, that child gives Naomi the purpose. He's a source of her joy and hope. As the next generation, he provides security. He brings strength. Uh, none of these people are living in the past. They aren't even thinking about the past. They don't reflect upon an overinflated, idealized notion of what life used to be like back in Moab. Uh, they're focused entirely on the hope of tomorrow and all of the promise that it holds. The writer concludes by documenting the family's royal lineage from Judah who was the father of Perez, all the way to King David. It says in verse 18, Now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron born Ram. To Ram, Amenadab. Glad we don't name him like that anymore. And uh, Amenadab was born Nishan. To Nishan Solomon, to Solomon Boaz, Boaz Obed. Obed was born, uh, was born Jesse, and to Jesse, King David. If you get no other point today, I think it's been obvious enough, but let it be this. Israel's hope was always and consistently invested in the future. They learned from the past, they're hopeful for the future. And they are producing a godly offspring that would not only strengthen their families, strengthen their nation, they'd be ready to serve and worship the Messiah as he arrived. They were waiting on him. They were waiting on the arrival of Christ. They were looking forward to him. 
But you know, the church is doing the same thing. We tend to always look back at the resurrection, which is good. We look back at the cross and and sins being paid. We need to do that. But the Bible tells us to look towards what? The future. Just as they were looking at the first advent of Christ, they were looking forward to it in Israel, we are looking for the return of Christ. The second advent. Um, We're in the business, in the meantime, of doing what Israel did, reproducing a godly offspring through evangelism, through discipleship, that will grow and strengthen our family together. That's our hope for St. Lucie Bible Church. Reproduction. We want to see new births, perhaps better labeled rebirths, through the Spirit of God. Uh, we want to see new babies, new babes born who crave the, new, the pure milk of the Word. We'll nurse them into spirituality. Oh. They're going to grow up and be strong brothers and sisters in Christ. They will stand with us. They will share the burden with us, share the load. That's where the hope is. You folks are very unique in evangelicalism. And and I do mean that. I have a lot of optimism. uh, Not only just recently with the number of people that we've reached and the number of faces that we've seen come into the church. um, There aren't many congregations that will do what you're doing. That's a fact. Uh, And what I like most is you're experiencing the joy that that brings. The service that you're doing... The outreach, everybody has different gifts. The person standing out in a street corner with a sign, no more of a servant than the person who is working the plumbing at another time or preaching the sermon or leading worship. Everybody has their giftedness. But most churches won't support the type of outreach that you all are doing. Rita and I used to be, right after coming to faith, involved with a church. We looked for just a local church. We didn't know what we were looking for. But we plugged in, and and that church had pretty good doctrine. It was respectable. The behavior wasn't. Um, it's fairly new believers. You know, we want to see more people come to know Christ. Um, we'd ask in prayer group. There's only a small number of them. It's a very small church. Around about 40 people, 40, 50 people. And it became evident before long, why it had been at that level for some time. Um, Rita and I, I would say, what can we do? What can we do to reach a community for Christ? And uh, we'd hear comments like, well, we really don't need to do that here. You know, there's a sign out front, and, you know, if God wants them to come in, you know, he'll bring them in. And, uh, uh, you know, besides, we'd get mentioned, I remember Rita and I will chuckle, chuckle every once in a while, we'd hear comments like, well, you know, we really kind of know everybody here. We kind of like it that way. And Rita and I looked at each other afterwards and I said, we don't like it that way. Oh. And the thing is, that church is not atypical in America. That's typical. Uh, they never talked about what tomorrow would look like. All they did was, it was talk about that idealized notion of the past. And uh, they're great people. But I, I, to be honest, this is now over a decade ago, well over. And uh, just this morning, I had a few moments, I went to their website just to check, see how things are doing. I'm like, just kind of curious now. Because I know they've been in a, in 
a rut for a long time, and I was wondering what it looks like ten, ten years later. Identical. Has not changed. Same people, same place, same attendance. God bless them. They're missing out on a great opportunity. They're missing out. No doubt that they're Christians. We're going to see them in heaven. They're going to hear a well done, good and faithful servant. But they're missing out on a lot of opportunity. We're going to talk a little bit next week about church size. Just a small bit. We'll talk about it. Yeah, and we'll look at what the typical church looks like in America as we look towards uh, the future. And uh, there's very valid explanations to why churches grow, why they don't grow. Sometimes it's spiritual, but a lot of times it's just functional, how they operate. And uh, I think we all would agree that we want to have a lot of strong brothers and sisters alongside us, shoulder to shoulder, that can help us with the nursery, help us with the grounds work, help us build, help us uh, reach more for Christ, help us worship. All kinds of things we want to do. And as the family grows, you've already experienced this with the people who've come in. And, and being involved with the big church previously um, on a small level, obviously I didn't lead it, but being involved with that, when you have more people come in, the, the burden gets easier. Everybody's scared of how tough it's going to get if, if you get larger. It gets easier. You have people sharing the burden. you got people with skills that you don't have, and you're able to... Uh, uh, share the burden. You know, many hands make for light work. And there's a practical aspect to it. Uh, we need people who are skilled in technology. Bruce was saying to us this morning, it's like, you know, we've only got two, guys, two people that are really trained in the booth. And uh, we need people handy in the nursery. And we need handyman people and teaching people. We need everything. People who are willing to go out on the streets. We need people who are willing to worship. I don't know if you all know this or not. Gerald doesn't want to do as much in worship as he does. He loves serving you. Do not get me wrong at all. He loves playing the harmonica. He loves playing the trumpet. He loves leading, for the most part. But he really doesn't want to do as much of the special music as he does. He would love for new people to come in here that are, that are committed to playing instruments, hopefully who are good at playing instruments, <laughs> but he wants to come in and he'd like to have them prepared to show their giftedness. He, he wants to shepherd. That's what a shepherd loves to do. That's what a pastoral call looks like, is you love to see other people thrive in their giftedness. You love to see them grow and use their talents to glorify Christ and to share the workload. Gerald has that call. He wants to see others excel in worship and in family ministries and in nursery and lots of things that he is over right now. Man, I don't know what we'd do without him. He wears a lot of hats, and we're very thankful for that. But growth is going to require other people step into those roles. We look forward to that. We look forward to thriving in ministry and seeing people rewarded by Christ for their service in ministry. Uh, pastors, be very honest, pastors should not want to do it all themselves. Gerald and I don't want to do it all ourselves. We want to share the burden. We want to equip others for the building up of the body of Christ. Um, applies to everything growth makes everything easier it's going to take time like any family as you grow as you shoulder the burden it gets easier it gets more fun you see faces that are alive for Christ 
didn't think about talking about this, but uh, just to credit your search team before I came. Coming up in 11 months now? And uh, we talked a lot about growth, what it might look like to uh, share burdens. And I was very impressed with the church team because I was straight up. I'm like, is it a dead church? I'm not moving from Texas for a dead church. And he said, it's not. This is not. You've got a genuine desire here, people to see others come to Christ. I have witnessed that. It is really wonderful. We've got a wonderful, uh, amazing heart to want to see others uh, come to know Jesus. And I, I'm thrilled. I am just absolutely thrilled. And I, I cannot say that to any higher level. Rita and I love you folks. We're impressed by you folks. And, and we look forward to many more years of healthy ministry. I think I better wrap it up. Lord, thank you for this church. Lord, thank you for the many, many servants that you have here that are that are seeking to point others to you. They're, they're willing to fill that role of uh, helping others to redemption, Lord. I pray you bless them all for that. Lord, I pray that uh, you bring them the joy, the... Uh, the satisfaction, Lord, the peace that comes from, from serving you. Lord, in the days and, and years ahead, we pray for Port St. Lucie Bible Church, Lord. We pray that you would grow our number, grow it further, and, and bring in people that are just really skilled, ones that love you, Lord. Rebirths in Christ, new people that want to hear about just the basic doctrines even of the Bible. People that want to learn, people that want to grow, and Lord, we really look forward to the wonderful work that you're going to do here at this church. Lord, sometimes even in spite of us. But you are a wonderful, uh, magical God, Lord, and, and all you do through your power, through your strength, Lord. Um, it's really a mystery how you can use people like us to glorify a wonderful God like yourself. Lord, as we depart today, I pray that uh, you'll encourage us as we go out this evening to uh, witness again uh, help us open doors ahead of us, Lord. Go before us. Send your spirit to convict of sin. Give us the courage to uh, speak the word in truth and in love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.